Welcome to Taking the Higher Road, Driver Reach and Freight Waves production. I'm your host, Jeremy Raymer, founder and CEO of Driver Reach. On this show, I interview industry experts and thought leaders who bring their insights to the driver lifecycle as we discuss the industry's greatest challenges, driver recruiting and retention. Uh, appreciate all the feedback on the show, and don't forget to rate and review Taking the Higher Road on whatever platform you're using to listen. On today's show, uh, I'm excited to be talking with Justin Reed, manager, DOT Strategic Alliances with Hireite, who as I'm sure many of you know, is the premier provider for fleets of background reporting on driver hires. And they actually just released a really interesting benchmark report compiling data uh, about the pandemic and, and how it's impacted the uh, driver workforce. And Justin's going to uh, break it all down for us today. Uh, great to have you on the show, Justin. Great to see you. Jeremy, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. I greatly appreciate the opportunity. Well, during today's conversation, uh, I certainly want to make sure we touch on uh, what you consider to be the biggest takeaways from Hireite's uh, recent Transportation Spotlight report, um, driver recruiting and retention in the age of the drug and alcohol clearinghouse, social media's ongoing impact on recruiting and retention, and, and how fleets can continue to fill the pipeline with the current driver force, you know, aging out of, of driving and into retirement. And of course, we'll also answer a, uh, a listener-submitted question in our Deeper Dive segment. Does that, uh, does that all work for you? Absolutely. The data that we have here is certainly showing us some very substantial implications on what's happening with recruiting. So it's a good thing to discuss. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And Justin, I've known you for many years. We were talking uh, before we started here, just how far we go back. We've both been in the industry about the same amount of time. And I think you may have been one of the first vendors uh, I met as I was just getting started in the industry. And so we've had so many really good conversations. Uh, can you maybe just share with the audience you know, how you got into the industry for one, and then and then how you're you know currently interfacing with you know fleets and other strategic partners in your current role at Higher Right? Pleased to, and you know what, it's been a pleasure knowing you all these years. Uh, I, I am grateful for the relationship. I did get into the industry, and when you're talking about the background screening industry, which is actually the the industry that I'm in supporting the transportation industry. So I've kind of got my feet in both of these environments. I don't think too many people purposefully get into background screening, at least to begin their career. And I, like so many folks uh, before me, sort of came about this because it was, well, it was a good place to be. So uh, I started here after having worked in health insurance, having worked in uh, other different types of industries, and actually having been an entrepreneur, which quite honestly, didn't pay the bills. So <laughs> I started working with uh, what became Higher Right. I've actually uh, stayed with the company now through it's five or six mergers. I'm not sure which one it is, but uh, I've seen a lot happen in the nearly 20 years I've been doing this. Now, you know, this has been a big theme, you know, uh, certainly on our show lately, how how the pandemic and, you know, everything else that's happened, you know, over the past 18 months or so has, has fundamentally changed driver recruiting and retention for fleets. And, you know, again, Higher Right just released this report that, that captures a lot of these changes in a, in a quantitative manner. Uh, can you tell us about, you know, some of the high-level findings? What really stands out to you? Well, there are a lot of statistics that I think we'll really talk about here today, a lot of, of actual numbers that we came up with by surveying our large pool of customers to get an understanding what they're dealing with with regard to recruiting and the impact of different things on their recruiting pipelines. I think that... Uh, you know, to kind of start that off, when we look at this, we see that the workforce is aging at a, a rate that replenishment is not keeping up with. Mm -hmm. And there's a number of reasons why, and I think we'll talk about that here today. But 57% of the drivers are over 45 years old. Uh, and in fact, 25% of the entire current driver force 
will retire within the next 10 years. So that is a huge overall aggregate number of people that will be leaving the workforce on a permanent permanently uh, here in the next decade. And if you extrapolate that out even further with the workforce being over 45 on average, uh, more than half of us over 45, yeah, there's definitely going to be some challenges to replenish that pipeline as we go through. Um, and to even kind of cap that perspective, of the drivers that are in seats today, 10% of those people are past the retirement age. Mm -hmm. So any day now, 10%, uh, these folks could just choose to not be part of this anymore. Well, and that's a challenge too, as, we, as, we, as we've been talking about for many years. It's a systemic issue, I think, that we're, we're talking about. Um, you, a, you have more drivers leaving the industry than, than new entrants coming in. I think certainly last year um, was a multitude of 10 of that situation because of, of a, you know, the, uh, because of the coronavirus. And so, and of course it didn't help that that also the perfect storm of the drug and alcohol clearing house that we can also get into, but all of those led to, you know, a, a significant exodus from the industry, or at least a sideline sitting for a period of time. And we weren't getting as demand was, you know, so uh, incredible that we, we were not getting enough new entrants into the industry. And one of the challenges that I've heard, um, I'm a huge proponent of the idea of, of reducing the minimum age from 21 to 18 uh, with certain caveats, you know, uh, training being the primary uh, focus there um, is, is one of the, one of the most uh, incredible statistics that I've seen over the last couple of years is just that the average age of a new entrant. So I would never have suspected you know, it's between 35 and 38 years old, depending on who you gather that info from. But that's a big difference from 21. And so that's a challenge, right? And and, and if we're, you know, successful in, in drawing in a, a younger generation, you know, a new generation, if you will, uh, you know, drivers in the industry, what, what should we expect with younger people entering the driver workforce and, and filling the seats of those older drivers? Any any thoughts on that topic? Well, you know, I, I think that we really have to be concerned about that pipeline with regard to the youngest people coming into the industry. I mean, what we're seeing in this last year being clearly not a, a typical year. However, it's not as if that's just resolving uh, suddenly. Uh, this seems to be a process now that is drawing out and continuing to create disruption and uncertainty. And in our surveying of driving schools, we found that a, there was a 40% reduction in certification of new drivers last year. That's substantial in an environment that is already stressed for people to be filling seats. So 40% reduction, uh, you know, impacted by the pandemic, of course. Mm -hmm. Will they rebound? That data is yet to be shown uh, because there's a lot of other pressure going on with regard to that professional driver workforce. Uh, when we look at this and consider that candidates would have been in the market as drivers last year, now there are other things that they're going to be needed to consider. And so there's some other data that I think we should look at as well that really is impacting where are these people finding employment, where if they were going to be a driver or if they would have gone to a driver certification school and chose not to, where have they gone? What is our chief competition for talent at this point? And that's not just a trucking issue. I mean, certainly it's a big trucking issue, but it's an issue across a lot of different industries. Um, I know, it, you know, I, I kind of commented on the, the drug and alcohol clearinghouse and, you know, that took effect in January 2020. And kind of quick, funny story. Um, it was January 6th of 2020. It's actually January 6th. And so I remember you know, it. <laughs> well, 
most people remember January 6th, but they remember January 6th, 2021, because that was also, a, a, you know, a, a, you know, a day that will, you know, stand the test of time. But uh, January 6th, there was anyway in uh, in our application, our driver facing application when they're, you know, we want to encourage drivers to register and, and get, you know, in the uh, clearinghouse so that they're able to, you know, get a um, pre-employment uh, uh, query, you know, done, you know, cleanly and quickly. And so anyway, one of the comments, the driver said, what does this have anything to do with January 6th? I'm like, ah, wrong year, wrong year, January 6th, 2020. Don't get all upset and offended. Um, but it has sort of gotten lost, I think, in the in the craziness of the past two years, the impact that the clearinghouse has had, uh, or in the last year and a half anyway. Um, can you tell us what the report said about um, the impact of the clearinghouse and, and what that's had on the on the driver force? Well, now that you've made this correlation between the January 6th, this I hadn't really thought about that. I'm clearly taking January 6th off next year. So, right. so uh, really, it is interesting when we look at the impact of the clearinghouse. So we clearly lobbied for the clearinghouse to happen. We waited for a decade for the clearinghouse to get uh, the legs that it needed to become operational. And it's a good thing. I mean, it's been doing its job. Prior to its launch, we really suffered from any comprehensive way to query previous employers about violations. It just really wasn't working. So did we expect to see this have some, some impact on, uh, on the industry? Yes. I think it's had substantial impact on the industry. When we actually look at the number of violations, 46,000 violations reported at the clearinghouse just since the, since this year. So that's 46,000 drivers who are impacted under the uh, 382 regulations with their ability to operate a commercial motor vehicle. Not an unsubstantial amount of people. Sure. And uh, when we look at that, I think that we have to understand that uh, it's not just those people who have been essentially discovered and placed in the clearinghouse as a violation, but the word is out. This is a new realm in this regulated industry. And so when you have potential candidates who may have come into this industry before, I think they're looking for different areas. I think they're saying, hey, you know, there's this is uh, restricted substances are highly monitored in this industry. And if you are into that, you just go someplace else. Now, that's been the case. I think it's much more so now when we when we see that, you know, 46,000 of these have been placed into the, uh, the violation category. And, and I think that that number could have been higher if it didn't, you know, coincide with a, uh, a global pandemic. It's conceivable. Oh, I think it's absolutely conceivable that it would have been higher. And hopefully we'll start to see uh, some more you know, pure data come out as the world hopefully returns to some level of normalcy. We're working on that, but we are our own worst enemy. Let's not forget. Um, so let's uh, let's shift gears for a minute and, and, and talk about driver retention. You know, if you have a good driver, obviously, you know, why don't you do all you can to, to keep them happy, uh, keep them at your fleet rather than watching them leave uh, for another company. Um, but with sign-on bonuses, pay raises all over the place, you know, how are fleets, you know, reacting to the really desperate need to retain drivers? Can you share anything in, in your data that that references the challenges of retention? Yeah, I think there's some clear indicators in this data that came forth this year. Uh, something that I think is really interesting about recruiting that we have to take a look at is when you run a recruiting ad in for, for a driver, uh, the statistics that we were able to compile really indicated to us that it takes about nine postings to capture one hire. Yeah. 
And I want to juxtapose that to, for instance, a warehousing job where we find competition for the same talent. A warehousing uh, competitor is going to put out a job notification. And of that one recruiting effort that they take, they're going to get two hires out of that one job posting. So we can see right now that there's some issues going on there in regard to how our message gets out. I think employers are struggling to find the right combination uh, to impact retention. So 56% of the respondents declared that they are increasing pay to increase retention. You know, I think in a purely, uh, uh, what would be the right word I'm looking for there, sort of a, a, a purely numbers-driven environment, well, okay, maybe that's where we should go. But the next, next statistic kind of proves that maybe that's not the way to go because 58% of drivers that leave their organizations upon their exit interviews indicate that they are leaving to seek more money. So we're upping the money to get retention. People are going out the door saying, I want more money. Uh, this seems like a cycle that would be tough to actually continue to see happen because you can only increase those pay numbers to, to a certain extent, to a certain amount. Um, most data points to companies thinking of retention almost solely in regard to some sort of uh, financial number. So if it's not actual pay, it's some level of benefit, something that can be quantified as a, a numerical remediation back to, the, back to the driver. What we did see also strangely fall statistically is companies focus on culture and driver experience. So uh, there certainly were some, incre some, some increases in previous years with regard to the approach to driver culture, driver experience being a key focus with, with many uh, customers of higher right. But that statistic fell off in this particular report. So we're seeing the money go up, the engagement go down. I don't know that that's going to be the right way to see retention actually develop. Yeah, I, I agree. And and, and it, it, when you first said that, I was kind of shocked because I just think that's backwards. But I think it speaks to the desperation that companies are feeling right now where they feel like, you know, culture uh, and the driver experience, that's the long game that wins. I 100% believe that that's really important. Um, but when you're desperate, I think you, 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 you're grasping. And, and so I think that may be why that that score. That's the only way I can you know consider justifying how that would go down because I think that uh, that you know providing a, an environment where drivers feel like they've got a voice and they're heard and and they feel like they're part of things and and they can help affect change and not just you know uh, be the one holding the steering wheel and they don't get any say and and it doesn't matter. I think that's all part of, you know, creating that environment and creating that culture, I think is really important from a retention standpoint. So um, again, I just think it speaks to maybe the, the desperation that, that the industry's in. Um, so we all know that social media has been a complete game, cha uh, game changer in terms of driver recruiting. Uh, it's becoming the primary strategy for, uh, for so many fleets in finding and hiring drivers. Um, the, the report, uh, your, your benchmarking report has some interesting uh, stats on that. Can you, uh, you know, tell us what uh, what you've uncovered and what maybe some of the main takeaways should be uh, for fleets from a social media standpoint? Jeremy, I think you hit it on the head just a second ago. I mean, you were saying drivers need to have a voice. They want to have a voice. They want their their perspective to be heard. You know, I attest that their voice is heard. It's just heard by their own doing, and that's where social media really comes into play. Uh, when we look at recruiting process, what is becoming very clear to me is that the social media influencers 
are key to to really success or not. And this isn't a new thing, but drivers are really taking this uh, opportunity to have their voice heard, to gain control of their own message and running with it. So they can become a influencer for, for or against their organization. Current drivers, former drivers, people taking to YouTube and various other platforms to discuss their opinions, give their day in the life assessment, give their their frank and often instant response to things that are going on, that all plays back to keeping their employers very honest about the culture that they say exists versus what actually exists. And I think the statistic that we pulled out in our benchmarking report really says it all. And that is that influencers on average have 561% more engagement regarding their company than the company's sponsored efforts do and 10 times more followers than the company websites or or social media efforts have. Okay, that's very substantial. So these influencers are having an influence. Now, I think the challenge for any recruiter is, this is a very organic environment. So the moment that your recruiting officers or your your, your marketing team wants to try to get a hold of those recruiters, those influencers and uh, influence them to say the right thing or whatever it might be, I think it falls apart then because the organic truthfulness of these influencers is what gains them those followers. So the only way you can really make that influence benefit your organization is to be what you actually claim to be and make sure you know what that is. Well, there's no question, right, that we can all say how great we are, but it doesn't matter. What do other people say that actually are witnesses to that? And and the the, the, the playing field is level now. I mean, you know, there was a time you didn't have the internet. You didn't have the ability to go in and do research. Like today, if you want to go out to eat dinner, you don't just go to a restaurant. You look up, especially if you're in a place that you're not familiar with, you're going to look up reviews and what other people say. And in the same thing, I mean, all of us, all of us who hire uh, drivers need to recognize that what is being said out there in social media is a perception of reality. Whether you think it's reality or not, that's the that's what people are going to listen to and look at. Um, everybody has a microphone. That's the double-edged sword of social media. It's where <clears throat> a, a good friend, Bob Stanton, uh, a professional driver who says, uh, he, he laughed when I made this comment once, but it's, it's uh, you know, social media where the ill-informed educate the uninformed. But it is what it is. It's a double-edged sword. It's really valuable. Uh, it's a valuable tool, uh, but you got to, you know, understand the, 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 the two sides to it and leverage it accordingly. Do you, uh, I'd like to, if you want to say something on that topic before we get into the deeper dive uh, segment. No, I, oh, the only uh, thing I would say is I actually have taken it upon myself to to actually follow some of these influencers now and and listen to what they're saying, because it's material to what their experience is. I want to, I want to know. And yeah. my experience in listening to various different influencers out there is you can easily tell those who are being objective versus those who have to, determine that they're going to to take the conversation in a, in a particular direction uh, on purpose. So the objective ones, I tend to like to hear what they're really saying. The other folks, I go, okay, they've got an ax to grind. Uh, is it in character with the rest of their experience uh, or is it simply they're trying to be vindictive? So I would encourage folks to take an interest in what's going on out in that environment and listen. And there are trolls everywhere too, by the way. I mean, I, I, I see them all the time. Um, so 
here's a question. This is a deeper dive question, a listener submitted question. Um, you know, recognizing that, you know, higher rights leader in, in employment screening background checks, uh, this is a background screening question. And the question is, how important is it to run background screening reports that are above and beyond minimum FMCSA requirements? You know, there's obviously, there's a checklist of, you know, what's required, um, but there's a lot of things that companies can do above and beyond that, PSP, you know, being one of them. What are your thoughts on, well, how would you respond to that? What's your best answer yeah. for that question? Well, yeah, okay, really there are two categories of screening, right? There's going to be the mandated DOT screens that are, uh, everybody's going to run these. And then there are those that are established as best business practices. And they both have a very important role in what uh, a customer of higher rights going to do to develop their safety protocol and in, frankly, I think also impact retention. Uh, we do find some interesting things with regard to both the DOT required elements and the optional or best practices components as well. So 62% of the time uh, when we're running um, a driving record on a particular candidate, we find information that the recruiter is going to uh, be interested in with regard to making a decision uh, about that driver. So 62% of those MBRs that get run have something that that recruiter needs to know about that candidate before they trust them in their vehicle. So that's a, a pretty good reason why to continue to follow those regulated requirements, which of course MBRs are one of them. Um, we also find interestingly, like 49% of the records that we are engaged with, uh, with regard to former employers, we're, we're doing employment verifications. So 49% of those find a discrepancy from what the former employee has, uh, told their potential employer about their previous record. Almost half of them then are showing that yeah. recruiter something interesting. So both of those required components, guess what? They're there for a reason. They make a lot of sense. When we start looking at optional components, we start looking at the PSP, we start looking at um, uh, criminal records, for instance, there's a tremendous amount of information in those non-required but, but best business practices that I think we've got to be able to go back and make decisions uh, wisely with that information. 44% of the candidates that we run criminal screening on report back something that that recruiter needed to know about that applicant. Yeah, and I'm it not saying helps that that painted the right picture, right? Uh, not that 44% of applicants are unhirable, by no means. Right. It's very important as a recruiter that you know what is going on. You can make a decision and say, hey, we're going to uh, take an opportunity with this candidate. We're going to uh, trust this candidate, you know, uh, or to quote Ronald Reagan, we're going to, you know, trust but verify. Uh, I think that's really, really important that that the recruiter knows that. Because if you start looking at what's going to get your organization in the biggest hot water is to not know something that was easy to know. And that's well, what and you know, and you know where it comes out is plaintiff's, you know, plaintiff's attorney. You know, there's an accident, something happens. I mean, that's why you see, you know, nuclear verdicts just going through the roof is uh, there's that 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 risk. And, and it's kind of leads me, I guess, to the to the final question here. And just to stick with screening, you know, what are some of the new tools that carriers are deploying in the in the driver screening process? And and, I, and maybe this is sort of a I'm going to lead you a little bit because I do want to talk about driver monitoring, because, as you know, you and I know, we talked about this 10 years ago, at least about the value and the importance of, of an ongoing driver monitoring program uh, because nobody wants to employ a driver who's who's been disqualified and they wouldn't have any way of knowing except maybe once 
a year they run a, an MVR, uh, or even if they do it more often than that, it's still imperfect. I want to know as soon as that happens so I can protect everyone who's at risk uh, in, in, otherwise. So, you know, any, any, you know, what are your thoughts on, on, on driver monitoring? That's something that, um, that you're involved with as well. And there are any other sorts of tools that, uh, that might kind of help reduce risk. You spend plenty of time speaking to legal experts just like I do, and we realize that there's consistent conversation about the standard of care. The standard of care is, in essence, not a regulation that's been written, but it is what is available in an industry that the majority of your competitors or your cohorts in the industry are doing, and that is simply easy to do and would be reasonably expected for you to do. Now, 10 years ago, when we discussed driver monitoring, that wasn't the case at all. Mm -hmm. And 10 years before that, when I was new in the industry, criminal records weren't part of that category either. But now, criminal records are very much a standard of care, even though it's not a regulated requirement. And driver monitoring is moving into that category as well, Jeremy, because the technology exists to make this fairly easy. Mm -hmm. The safety uh Inputs that it gives to your organization are substantial enough that that you need to be doing that. And I would say that in the next 10 years, the next thing we're going to see move is criminal record monitoring. Uh, those technologies are certainly coming into play and the ability to notify an employer should one of your employees have a criminal record that suddenly pops up that you may not know about. Those things are important for an employer to be able to know based upon the types of employment that's being offered. Uh, Obviously, that that plays into that. But those two kinds of monitoring, I think, are really gathering a lot of steam right now. And I think a third item pertains back to all of those hits that we found through the clearinghouse, which clearly clearly indicates to us that there are abusers of control, controlled substances in the marketplace. So reasonable suspicion is one of those things that that boy, nobody really likes to talk about that doing the reasonable suspicion training, the 382603 stuff. Guess what? Of all of the reasonable suspicion drug tests that we have conducted, which is really quite a, a few, we saw that number in 2019. Uh, the positive rate was about 10.9%. We saw it raised to over 15% in 2020. Okay, that's not a huge pool of people, but you're seeing a tremendous increase, which means this, this is infiltrating into our environment. So those three things right there, are you able to handle... Uh, your drug and alcohol policy in such a way that you can have an effective reasonable suspicion system? Are you going to monitor your MVRs? And are you considering monitoring of criminal backgrounds in the types of employment that would warrant that? That's that's great insight, uh, Justin. I, I really appreciate you joining me today. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate your commitment to the industry and, uh, and look forward to seeing you at upcoming events soon. Jeremy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for joining me for another episode of Taking the Higher Road and for spreading the word to your industry peers Definitely appreciate it. And remember, you can submit any questions or comments, including those which may appear on upcoming Deeper Dive segments at podcast at driverreach.com. And don't forget to rate and review Taking the High Road on whatever platform you listen. Until next time, thank you for taking the high road.